0: Everybody, Uh, let me reintroduce myself. My name is Chase Dawes, um, and uh, a couple connections in Nashville. I actually lived in Nashville a little over 10 years ago and was an RUF intern at a university that many of you know called uh, Belmont University with a legend named Kevin Twitt, uh, which has some deep ties to this church. And my wife and I were gone for about 10 years. My wife's name is Holly. She is a wonderful woman. We have three little boys, Gabe, Bo, and Griffey. And we spent uh, most recently uh, serving, uh, I was serving as the RUF campus minister at UC Berkeley uh, before last summer accepting the call to come to Vanderbilt. So it is very sweet to be back home. And I am very grateful uh, to be here with you this morning. So with that said, um, I'm going to read our passage Uh, this morning from John 8, and then I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in, okay? So let's read. This is from John chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent down, and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, "No one, Lord." And Jesus said, "Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we um, we need you this morning. Um, It is really easy, uh, especially where we live, it's really easy to walk in doors and walk into buildings like this and keep pretending. Keep pretending that everything is okay in our personal lives, in the world, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships. But Jesus, help us to stop pretending. No matter where we're at this morning, some of us are here eager to be here Some of us are here and our faith is barely hanging on and some of us are here and we have no idea why we are in a church. And yet, you have promised to meet us no matter where we're at. So Jesus, I would ask that you, even now, would meet with me, one who needs you desperately in this moment. Would you meet with all of us, we pray, by your spirit, amen. Um, So I have a question for you this morning as we get started. And I, I want you to think about this. Have you ever wondered why we are so affected by the opinions of other people? Have you ever wondered why we're so affected by the opinions of other people? Um, when Mariah Carey was in her late 20s, I talked with Randy earlier in the week, and I was like, hey, I'm struggling with an opening, opening illustration. And he said, everybody in here is a huge Mariah Carey fan, so I thought I'd <laughs> just go with that. Um, She's at the top of her game now, so I've heard. Has been for some time. So when Mariah Carey was in her late 20s, according to Google at least, she already had more number one hits than anyone in music except for Elvis and the Beatles. A ton of number one hits. And she was uh, meeting with this reporter who asked her, is there anything that's left for you to accomplish? And she sat there quietly for a moment, thinking, and then she, she looked at him and she responded, yes, yeah, she said, happiness. Happiness is what's left for me to accomplish. And the reporter, as you can imagine, was really surprised by this. And he asked her, how could this be true? Given all of the success that you've had and all of the applause and all of the money that you've made, how on earth could you not be happy? And she looked she looked at the reporter and she said that she could hear a thousand praises and then just one criticism and the one criticism would override the thousand praises and wreck her emotionally. We at least I am are incredibly affected by the opinions of other people. And we love to say that it doesn't matter what other people think of us. It only matters what you think of yourself, but we, we don't actually live that way. Many of you may remember the old Saturday Night Live skit with the self-help guru, Stuart Smiley, who, who at the beginning of each sketch, he would look in the mirror and he'd say, I'm going to do a terrific job today, and I'm going to have a terrific show. I'm going to help people because I'm good enough, and I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. But the reality is, is for as much as we think that we are good enough and smart enough or beautiful enough or skinny enough or whatever it is enough, we are dependent on external voices. We're dependent upon the voices of our our spouses and our friends and our parents and our bosses and our coworkers. And so we come back again to this question, why are we so emotionally dependent? We live life in the courtroom of public opinion always trying to prove ourselves, always trying to make a case for ourselves, desperate for a verdict, desperate for someone to tell us that we are okay. Well, Christianity actually gives us two reasons why we live this way. Okay, so the first reason that Christianity gives us is because deep down, we all know that we're not okay. Deep down, we all know that we're not okay, and so we are on this endless search for some way to be okay. And then the second reason, the second reason we live this way is because the reality is is that we were actually made for the approval of another. We were made for someone outside of us, someone external to us, to look at us in loving approval and for us to bask in that approval. Can I get an amen? That's how I live. Most of us call it daddy issues or mommy issues. We want people outside of us to look at us in loving approval and for us to bask in that approval. What if I told you that there was a single voice of approval, a single voice of love and praise That could override a thousand voices of criticism. Isn't that a voice that we all long for? Well, that is the voice of Jesus over this woman in John 8. And what John's gospel wants us to know is that there are three things that she hears from Jesus. And therefore, there are three things that we must hear from Jesus if we want that voice in our lives. And here are the three things. You are guilty. You are guilty. You are not condemned. And you are free. You are guilty. You are not condemned. And you are free. So we're guilty. You know, um, Guilt is something that we have a really strange relationship with in the modern world. It's kind of in vogue, um, if you're on social media at all, at least, um, to assign guilt to other people. But the idea that uh, guilt is personal or that I am actually guilty of something, that is increasingly passe, or so we like to claim. Uh, But there's this fascinating article by a professor named um, Wilfred McClay that's called um, The Strange Persistence of Guilt, and what he says is that... While religion has been in retreat, guilt is as powerfully present as ever. He says that we have this inextinguishable need to feel morally justified. Okay, so let me give you a couple examples of this. I mentioned um, earlier that uh, I lived in Berkeley for some time. And and here's an example of this. We tend to demonize people that are not in our tribe. Um, I originally, I'm also, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm, I'm from Alabama. And so this is the back and forth between Berkeley and Alabama, and maybe even Berkeley and Tennessee. If you watch CNN, you demonize people who watch Fox News. And if you watch Fox News, you demonize people that watch CNN. If you live in Alabama, you demonize people who live in Berkeley. You think that is the problem with the world. And if you live in Berkeley... You look at people in Alabama or Tennessee and you say, that is the problem with the world. We love to find a tribe and stick to it. I've even picked up on this uh, since we've moved back to Nashville. Now that we have children, um, there's kind of a little bit of a competition between a lot of the private schools around here. Like if you go to MBA, then you demonize people who go to Innsworth. Uh, if you go to Innsworth, you demonize people who go to MBA. I don't know if that's actually true, but I was just trying to make it uh, contextual. Um <laughs> So, uh, and I also, you know, minister to a lot of those students at Vanderbilt now, so it's, it's somewhat true. Um, uh, and so, anyways, we create these binary categories of who is good and who is bad in order to feel morally justified. And that is McClay's whole point, that we are trying to deal with our guilt. If we can prove that someone else is wrong, that makes us feel right. If we can prove that someone else is a sinner, that makes us feel like a saint, And that is exactly what's happening in the text that we just read. Jesus is in the middle of a sermon, and these religious leaders, they interrupt him by bringing in this adulterous woman. And get this, the text says twice, right, that they caught her in adultery, and that is really important because what that means is it actually happened. Okay, this is not a story of innocence, this is real guilt. And they are exposing this woman in front of everybody. And so they march her down in front of Jesus because as the text says they're trying to set a trap for Jesus and you know in reality it's a brilliant trap because here's what they're doing if if Jesus shows her mercy then they'll accuse him of ignoring Mosaic law but if he says stone her then they'll call him out for denying the grace that he supposedly offers to everybody So what's he going to choose? It's it's this catch twenty two, right? If he if he ignores the law, they're going to say he's not the Messiah. He's not who he says he is because Messiah came to fulfill the law. But then if he doesn't uh, extend grace to her, then they're going to say, "Don't tell this guy about your struggles because he's just going to throw a rock in your face." So what is Jesus going to choose? Is he going to choose justice or mercy? So how does he respond? Um, well, the first thing that he does, this is something I love about the Bible. Um, there's, there's many instances where we don't really know why sentences are in there, but they kind of, you know, um, call us into question, like, what's going on here? Why is it there? Uh, the first thing that Jesus does is he, he doodles in the dirt. He gets his finger and he starts drawing in the dirt. And, and we don't know what he's doing. We don't know what he's writing Um, The text never actually tells us, but I actually think it's inviting somewhat of some creative interpretation there, which I think we could at least say that Jesus is incredibly indifferent to moral police and moral policing. He has more weightier things to take care of. But anyways, after he does that, then he responds and he says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus is actually doing two things in this statement. On the one hand, Jesus is affirming the guilt of the woman. He never actually says that she's innocent. He never says that she didn't break the law. She's she's guilty. But what's even more astonishing here is that secondly, Jesus is affirming the guilt of the religious leaders. Because one by one, after he says this, one by one, they all walk away. And why? Because the very law that they are invoking, they are actually guilty of breaking right now. The Old Testament law demanded that both parties caught in adultery were punishable. But they only have the woman. They only have one person. And so they are guilty of all kinds of things. They are guilty of partiality. Such a double standard, right? God shows no favoritism, but these religious leaders do. And not only that, not only a partiality, they're guilty of pride. These religious leaders, these spiritual elites, these professional religious folk, if you will, they think that their sins are somehow more respectable than this young woman's sexual sin, that their sins are somehow less offensive to God. And what Jesus is doing here is he is making it clear to them and to us that this is not the case. And the sad reality is, is that we still do this today. And we especially do it in the church. It is sexual sin in particular That we as Christians, that me as as a pastor, are so inconsistent with. If you struggle with certain kinds of sexual sin or brokenness or confusion, you might be admonished a little bit, but you will be given every opportunity to struggle within the community of faith, right? Within the church. Certain sexual stuff, yeah, you're good. But if you struggle with other kinds of sexual sin, and notice I'm saying struggle. If you struggle with other kinds of sexual sin, the church has historically not provided you the opportunity to wrestle within the safety of God's people. And what Jesus is telling us is that is wrong. I am wrong for doing that. The ground, as many of you know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the difference between this immoral outsider and these religious insiders is that she has no illusions about herself. And so she can hear Jesus say, you are guilty. But they can't. They can't hear it. And so the first question for us this morning is are we like these religious leaders blind to our own guilt, or are we like this young woman and have a strong sense of where we've messed up in life? Where are you at? Um, some of you are thinking um, like like Mariah Carey. Where is this uplifting voice? I'm not a new fan of this new Vandy guy because um, this is kind of heavy. Um, but I want you to hold on because the news gets much much better because there's a second thing that Jesus says to this woman. Um, One by one, all of these folks drop their stones and they walk away. And notice that the text says the oldest one's left first. The reality is, um, I'm not that old, but I'm getting older. But the reality is, is that the older that you are, um, the more time you've had to realize what a mess you are. Uh, I'm 36. um, And I remember being a little boy and thinking to myself, even at 36, right? I remember being little and thinking to myself, I will never do this. I will never do, I might struggle with some things, but I'll never do that thing. And I have done some of the very things that I swore I would never do. And Lord willing, I have a lot of life left. So I can only imagine what else will come up. One commentator puts it this way, he says, youth can be cocky. Uh, when you're 20, you think you know everything. And then when you're 30, you look at, you look at your 20 year old self and you think, what an idiot. I'm so much wiser now. And then when you're 40, you look back on your 30 year old self and you think, I didn't have a clue, but now I know. And then when you are 50, you look back at your 40 year old self and you think, I don't know anything. And you finally start to realize I'm forever an idiot. Um, we're not always idiots, we're made in the image of God but we do, we do fall often uh, and so anyways, one by one these folks, they walk away until all that's left is this woman and Jesus and you really have no idea what Jesus is going to say to her and you kind of expect him to say something like why did you do that? why did you do that? there's some other things that maybe wouldn't have been as bad but why did you do that? But instead, Jesus looks at her and he says, Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one. And then Jesus says to her, Then neither do I condemn you. The moment after Jesus affirms her guilt, he then takes her side. And I want you to see how different this is from every other message that we get in the world. Modern culture would tell you, You know what? You do you, you're not guilty. No one can tell you how to live, but life doesn't work that way, right? That's why the Me Too movement actually exists because we can't do whatever we wanna do. But on the other hand, religious culture says, you know what, you are guilty and therefore you are condemned. So you better try harder. You better keep those five pillars. You better align yourself with the Eightfold Path or improve your life or else God or karma or something is going to get you. But what Jesus says is totally different. He doesn't say, guilty and condemned. And he doesn't say, not guilty and not condemned. Jesus says, you are guilty, but you are not condemned. And that is the gospel. Guilty but not condemned. Sinful, but deeply loved. And here's the thing, you have to have both or you lose Christianity. You have lost the good newsness of the gospel. So how can both of those be true? How can Jesus uphold justice and mercy? How can Jesus uphold judgment and grace? That's, that's hard, one. That's a hard one for us because um, we want a God who loves. We're all for a God who loves, but we struggle quite a bit with a God who judges. That's why many of us are, are down with the God of the New Testament, but the, the OT God, I'm like, that, that homie is, he's strange. Um, so, how do we make sense of a God who holds both of these uh, in tension? Well, the key to understanding this passage is is actually a lot like real estate. Um, What they say about real estate, it's all about location, location, location. It's everything in real estate, and location is everything in John 8. Uh, Verse 2 tells us that this scene takes place in the temple courts, and that is significant because the temple was the courtroom of God, and in the Old Testament, that is where the high priest would go once a year on the Day of Atonement to make an animal sacrifice on behalf of the people and all of their sins. And after he would make that sacrifice, he would then pray on behalf of the people. He would pray for mercy and he would mediate on behalf of the people. And then later in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest and that he too offered a sacrifice. But that sacrifice was not an animal. It was Jesus himself. Jesus himself was the sacrifice. There's only one person in this scene who can throw a stone, and there is a wasp. <laughs> Don't sting me, please. Okay, I've never had that happen to me. <laughs> I, I, I hope that's the Holy Spirit, but I'm not. Ex- what, is that? what happens when a wasp descends on you? Uh, I thought it was supposed to be a dove. Um there's only one person in this scene that can throw a stone, right? Jesus never said, you can't throw a stone. He said, let him without, a, without sin throw the first stone. And so Jesus, what Hebrews is telling us and what the rest of the New Testament is telling us is Jesus was and is that sinless one. He's the judge, He's the rightful stone thrower. He is the sinless judge, the one who had every right to pick up a stone and throw it. But instead, the judge became judged. The sinless one became sin for us. And on the cross, on the cross, justice and mercy And judgment and grace and law and love, they collide like a stone on the head of Jesus. And not on you. And not on me. And not on this woman. But on Jesus. And you know what that means? It means that Jesus can look at us and say to us, You are not condemned. maybe I am. Where is he? Just let me know if he's going to sting me. I'm just going to keep going. It feels like Chase is about to sting you. Um, you are not condemned, right? <laughs> Where was I? Uh, you're not condemned because in the courtroom of God, right, there's this whole temple imagery, right? In the courtroom of God, Jesus is not begging God. He's not begging for mercy. He's not saying, I know that Chase screwed up again. Could you take it easy on him? That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus pleads justice because justice has been served on Jesus and not on you and not on me. And so God cannot make you pay for what Jesus has already paid in full. You are not condemned. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you do tonight. You are not condemned. You are approved. You are accepted. You are loved. You are protected. You are nurtured back to health and back to good standing, no matter who you are or what you have done. That is the verdict that our hearts long for. That is the voice of praise that can override a million voices of criticism, a million failures, a million shortcomings. And you know what happens when you experience that kind of love and acceptance? You have the capacity to hear the final thing that Jesus says to this woman Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and leave your life of sin. I want you to notice the order here. Jesus does not say, leave your life of sin and then I won't condemn you. He says, I don't condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. You see, the gospel is good news because grace and acceptance always comes before obedience. You do not change so that you can get the love of God in your life. You do not change so that you can get his grace and acceptance. He gives you grace and acceptance so that you can change. And if you understand that, then you'll see God's guidance and his commands not as a restriction, but as liberation. That you are then free to become the beautiful image bearer that God has created you to be. We have a warped view of freedom. We think that freedom actually means that we can live however we want to. But then in, in reality, you're actually just enslaved to your own appetites and desires. And what Jesus is telling us here is that real freedom is not the absence of boundaries. Real freedom is the presence of the life-giving guidance that God himself has determined for us in his infinite love and wisdom for us. That is what living in freedom looks like, knowing that you are accepted, not because anything that you have done, And then being empowered and enlivened by God's spirit to take the steps that your heart has always longed to take as a human being who bears the image of the infinite God who created the world. So what now? Um, How does a forgiveness like this actually free us to live? Um, I wanna give you just a couple of practical points and then I'm gonna close. In prayer, the first thing uh, is that it frees us uh, to live a life of humility. Knowing that you are guilty frees you from trying to live a life of self-righteousness and judgmentalism. It frees you from trying to pretend that you're actually better than anybody else, because you're not. I want you to look and see how gentle that Jesus is with this woman. I think this is really important for us to see right now because this is real sin. And I actually think that should be an encouragement because this means that you can take real struggles to Jesus. Jesus did not just die for us because we struggled to maintain a consistent quiet time. If you are hurting, if you are bruised and you feel beaten up, from others or your own mistakes, whatever it may be, go to Jesus. Look how gentle he is. Look how humble he is. And he frees us to embody that same humility as we love our hurting neighbors. It frees us to live a life of humility. It also frees us to live a life of trust. When Jesus asks us to turn from our sin, the reality is it's gonna require a great deal of trust on our part. And the reason why is because sin often feels a lot better, at least in the immediate moment. And sometimes it even seems more logical. But Jesus here, like every relationship that is rooted in deep vulnerability and intimacy and love, Jesus is inviting us to trust him. He's inviting us to trust him with our money, to trust him with our suffering, with our sadness, with our joy, with our depression. He's trusting us, or he's asking us and inviting us to trust him with our sexuality in our singleness, in our marriages, in our career, in our children, he is calling us to trust him with our lives. And it is a steep ask to trust Jesus. But what John is telling us is who has loved you like this? Who has loved you like this? And isn't that a love that you long to place your trust in? The last thing is that it frees us to live a life of patience. Do you think this woman ever sinned again after this? Do you think she was perfect after this really radical encounter with Jesus? The answer is no, She's still messed up. And, And Jesus knew that she wouldn't be perfect and he knows that we won't be perfect either, but he dealt with her gently and that means that he deals with us gently and he is patient with her, and that means he is patient with us. The Christian life is a long journey full of many stumbles and many scraped knees, but remember this. Jesus is the one who stands between the stones, and Jesus is the one who moves towards us in the depths of our adultery, when we feel least like a saint. And he picks us up and he carries us on. And a forgiveness like that only can come from a savior like this. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, even as we hear it, we forget it that you, in fact, are a savior like this. And so, whatever it takes, um, would you give us the daily bread that we need this day to believe just a bit more that you are the great savior who stands between the stones, no matter who we are or what we've done. We trust that you'll do this. In Christ's name, amen.